when we say that we are sharing ownership, we put a bit of an asterisk next to it and we say ownership of any company asset. So it's not just equity, it's including some membership loyalty points and so on. A sticky point that makes the community decide to continue being associated with the company. How do you convince someone to remain with you in your community? And even further, how do you ask them to help you grow? This is where this agnostic asset approach comes into play. We've really boiled it down to like four use cases that are applicable to every company out there. And that's sharing upside. That means, you know, long-term enterprise value. Then you have status. So let's say you've been a loyal sort of contributor and you've earned credits. Now you can convert this into status inside of that community. The third one is influence. The more you've contributed to value, the more influence you get. Votes and decisions that we're taking that are sort of at the strategic level that you only get access to if you've earned enough credits. And then the last piece is redemption. What we mean by that is credits can effectively become anything. You can decide to convert your credits into a t-shirt like merchandise or into a take rate reduction. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Boundaryless Conversations podcast. Uh, on this podcast, we meet with pioneers, thinkers, doers, and entrepreneurs, and, and we talk about the future of business models, organizations, markets, and society in this rapidly changing world. I'm Simone Cicero, and today I'm joined by my usual co-host, Stina Hekila. Ciao, Stina. Hello, happy to be here. Today, we are also joined by Spela Prion and Sasha Kellert from the own co-team. Uh, Spela Prion has been active with startups for a long time as a founder and a team member. Uh, most recently, she was head of uh, customer experience at Leggy, leading the implementation of uh, multiple types of equity plans for hundreds of startups from seed stage to IPO stage in different jurisdictions all over the world. And it was with uh, such an intimate understanding of the processes of sharing ownership that she co-founded OwnCo together with Sasha, who is on the podcast today, and Harry, who isn't. Sasha is a serial uh, entrepreneur who studied uh, systems theory at Bayes Business School in London with a thesis uh, exploring how to design viable businesses using patterns and blueprints from nature. Over the last decade, he has been developing practices and tools for the alternative ownership economy while building his two last VC-funded uh, software-as-a-service platform startups. Hello, both of you. Hey. Hey, guys. First of all, we said a little bit about uh, who you are and your work with Onco, but... Uh, uh, maybe for the audience, it would be great to tell a bit more about what Onco is and maybe also a little bit of the story, you know, the, the, you know, the, the evolution that brought you to uh, the product as it is today and uh, offering the functionality that the product offers at, at today. So Onco is a solution for companies that are looking to share ownership, most broadly speaking, right? And what we've built is an easy way for you to share ownership of any company or project with any contributor that's not just a... Um, employee. That works really well for startups and larger companies like enterprises. We came to this personally from the alternative ownership scene, seeing that co-ops and, and DAOs don't really work out. Yeah, we've been building the company for a year and a half. Happy to sort of expand on um, where we are today and where we're taking it. And uh, maybe uh, Spela can say a few words because she's come from a different kind of space to Onco. Yeah, that's true. That's true. There's a triangular coverage, alternative ownership, Web3. And then I just come from straight up cookie cutter startup equity sharing. Um, so that kind of combines all of the research that, been, that has been done about ownership sharing 
and we kind of combine it in one platform. So it allows for all of the industries to benefit from the learnings. But the way or why I actually wanted to work with Sasha, I think it's a pretty, pretty interesting story because he was already out there. He was already researching how to uh, set something up as a company that allows that for other companies. And I was in consulting, helping companies set up their equity plans. So it sounds uh, quite different, but at the same time, because I was so close to all of these decisions and how do you share ownership and how do actually people that receive it feel about it and what is the actual outcome, there were quite a few disconnects. And so being so close to it, I was looking for ways to make it more powerful because if you think about it, equity is one of the most powerful things you can own. And so I actually reached out to a common colleague of ours. She works in VC and I said, oh, what can I do? You know, I have so much interest in bringing equity more forward, making it help um, level out the playing field for everyone. And then she said, immediately thought, Sasha, talk to him. He's, you know, revolutionary work with him. And we met, we exchanged ideas, and I think it was in the first call that just clicked. We have to do something that brings ownership forward. And it's not just stuck in this equity loop that uh, it oftentimes gets stuck in. So why is this ownership economy so important? And uh, what was your contribution into fluidifying it? Essentially, the ownership economy was there. You know, we had cooperatives. But what did you bring? to the industry? What did you bring to the ecosystem in terms of, uh, you know, maybe we can explore a little bit the type of uh, ownership that can be shared or why and how you you made things different in terms of how easy you made it, uh, for example, uh, what kind of target context for the applicability of these techniques? So I think we connected the dots a couple of years ago between cooperatives and like existing alternative ownership models, like the purpose model, the traditional co-op, and then the DAO space, decentralized autonomous organizations, and the traditional startup environment where you do share ownership already, but typically only with like high level people and C level. And um, we saw sort of the common thread there and things that were good and bad about each one, right? So co-ops being a little bit too rigid, the one member, one vote system might not be perfect for, for every situation. DAOs being super revolutionary, but not really easy to adopt because they operate in a legal gray area, tokens, security tokens, still to this day being very difficult to adopt, even if we had regulatory clarity. And then startups not really going all the way with how they share ownership. You know, it's typically reserved to some senior staff, developers. When you look at those three and put them together, then you see, hey, if you take the best from all those three worlds, um, you can really rethink ownership and redesign ownership and build something that might eventually lead to a different way of organizing, like this new blueprint, which is essentially the vision that we've been driven by, right? We want to reinvent this basic construct that our economy is made up of, like the, the legal entity, right? And what we found now is what we call credits. And credits are basically ownership credits that any company can issue. And these can be issued uh, by connecting them to your existing systems. Once you have done that, you can issue credits for actions from contributors. To, to give you an example, like we have a fitness chain in, in, the, in LA. They want to get the best trainers to work out in their gym. And they can't do that by just giving them money. 
right? So they need an ownership-backed incentive. And this is essentially what a lot of companies that we work with today use Onco for, to share ownership in a more fluid way that doesn't need tokens and that doesn't require just traditional equity, right? So these trainers go into the gym, they work out in that gym, they get credits through Onco, and these credits are then backed through our system um, using a legal bridge with exit proceeds. So in the event of this fitness platform selling to some larger company, these trainers who've loyally worked out in that gym get exit proceeds through the credits, right? And that's just one use case where you can drive engagement and loyalty using credits. And it works better than traditional equity because you can't exactly connect your carta, maybe you really can say something on this, to sort of performance-based ownership. And you can't exactly use tokens or security tokens either. You know, it's too tricky and it's legally still a gray area. So this credit system is basically what we've built and it's super fluid and we're, we're onboarding more and more companies that use it for different use cases. I was curious to know, because you said DAOs are difficult to adopt, and I understand that it's related to the tokens and that gray area, Like, but other things of why are DAOs difficult to adopt and like, what are you addressing there in, in those difficulties? Or is that the, the main aspect? I think there's a couple of um, issues we see. It started out with, and still is probably the biggest issue, the regulatory lack of clarity, right? Um, is it an association? Is it a legal entity? If you bridge it into the real world, is it still a DAO? Like dogmatically looking at it that way, probably not. And then you have more technical issues like governance. How do you, like they, they haven't figured this out because governance of this whole monolithic DAO typically doesn't work out either, right? And then people are like, oh, we've got, you know, voter apathy. Then it's just also a user experience thing, right? I like to say that you're not going to get Nike to switch to becoming a DAO and adopt quadratic voting in their board meetings. You know, it's just not going to happen. So we think our, our our thesis of change is just a different one. We think these big monolithic companies are going to decompose into smaller micro companies. And I know, Simone, you're a big sort of believer in that, right, with the higher model and like boundaryless organizations. And these micro companies, we think, will use credits to semi-autonomously manage their ownership and resources. So a Nike department might break free from the mother and start... In initially is connected to Nike still because Nike shares exit proceeds with that sales team or business unit. But then over time, they can break free and they can manage their own credit cap table, which was initially funded with Nike exit proceeds or Nike revenue share. And now they can then start to move on chain and recompose as DAOs, right? So I think the future of DAOs is not these big monolithic things, but like networks of small micro companies. So I think that's the issue with DAOs as, as they are today. What are the elements that uh, Onco makes uh, programmable and distributable. So is, are we talking about traditional equities or rights on future revenues? Or are we talking about you know revenue sharing? Are we talking about decision rights? What are the kind of tokens of organization that can be distributed through Onco? We, we call those um, assets. So when we say that we are sharing ownership, we put a bit of an asterisk next to, next to it and we say ownership of any company asset. So it's not just equity, it's actually exactly what you listed, including some membership loyalty points and so on. So if we look at maybe a marketplace and a platform that is currently using Onco, they are where they are because of a community or they want to be somewhere and they need a community to help them get there. And a sticky point that makes the community decide to continue being associated with the company, so with the platform or the marketplace, is a tricky one. So how do you convince someone to remain with you in your community? And even further, how do you <laughs> ask them to help you grow? 
this is where this agnostic asset approach comes into play because not everyone is excited about getting cash compensation. Some contributors want exit proceeds, but what we've also found through our research is that a lot of them like the governance and the membership tokens of appreciation. So this is where they get to decide what are they going to redeem it for and how are they going to utilize their voice that they were all of a sudden given. And then if you put all of these things together, you create a relationship. So to boil it down, what Onco is trying to do is, is act on the interaction layer. It all comes down to the interaction and whichever interaction fits at that point in time for the company and the contributor. Okay, so just uh, as a way to underline for our listeners, did I get it well that uh, through Onco you can distribute uh, equity rights, let's say, so uh, you spoke about uh, exit proceeds, for example. We're talking about uh, governance rights, so participation to decisions and things like that. You spoke about membership, so something like loyalty points or whatever you know we consider you know, at this uh, different level. Can you also distribute uh, more... Uh, like direct access to revenues? Yeah. Okay, and that's also part of the possibilities. Uh, on one side, we take what used to be just a share, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a company, and um, we break it into like atomic parts, right? And then those become programmable and manageable. Like it, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to do this with traditional equity, you know? And this is where um, Spela mentions the tra- like the interaction layer, right? So now you can really connect it to things that are valuable and that aren't just done by people in an employment contract. Like we know work is changing, bound organizations are more boundary less, you know, you need something more flexible. So that's on one side where you can share revenue, you can share upside. And on the other side, we've really boiled it down to like four use cases that are applicable to every company out there. And every ownership sharing scenario, we believe fits into one of these four, right? And that's sharing upside. Like all of these sit under sharing ownership, they're sharing upside. That means, you know, long-term enterprise value you can share now um, using our system. Then you have status. Yeah, ownership is status. So let's say you've been a loyal sort of contributor and you've earned credits. Now you can convert this into status inside of that community, right? You're the top delivery rider or you're the most friendly delivery rider, right? And you get a badge for it. The third one is influence, right? Ownership is influence. So the more you've contributed to value, the more influence you get, right? So if you've been, a, again, like a heavy user, you're, you're, you log in every day, you contribute to the good of the community and maybe to the bottom line, you get more credits and with these credits, you can escalate your influence inside the organization, right? So there might be some votes and decisions that we're taking that are sort of at the strategic level that you only get access to and a voice in if you've earned enough credits. And this is a completely different way of doing governance based on contribution to value. And then the last piece is redemption out of the four. And redemption, what we mean by that is credits can effectively, this is the future of ownership because credits can now become anything. You can decide to convert your credits into a t-shirt like merchandise or into a take rate reduction, right? So I'll give you an example. We have a law community that we work with. It's 240 lawyers. They basically have a website where they get leads um, for new business, right? And how they get these leads is with content where they explain NFTs, Web3 projects, and that drives traffic, which drives business, right? They actually talk to the lawyers and say, hey, if you write content that brings us new business and traffic, yeah, you can earn credits. And we're not going to pay you for writing that content, but the credits you get, you can convert into reducing the take rate that you pay to us for the next deal that you get through our website. And that's like the redemption use case where you can earn credits and now you can redeem them into discounts, merchandise, 
any existing loyalty points or maybe even an ERC20 token that sits uh, somewhere else and is managed by someone else. So that's sort of the, the four main use cases to sharing ownership. Thank you so much for making clarity. So again, uh, for our listeners, we're talking about upside, status, influence, and redemption. You spoke about um, the legal breach, right? So my, my assumption is you've seen this possibility to take equity and you know unbundling it into these four elements, uh, and then you have to decide how how do you do that? How do you make it legal? I know that you have played with uh, both the technological side with, by integrating Web3, and on the other side, you also have been doing a lot of work in legal compliance, especially for European and US laws. So maybe you can give us an overview of uh, answering questions like, you know, is Onco legal? Can I use it as a company? And how does it work? And why Web3? Because I don't see the Web3 element from your website. So let's, let's maybe break down this more uh, enabling work that you have been doing. Yeah, uh, maybe I can talk about the general idea behind legal bridges and then Spieler can uh, talk about how it works and how we make it work with customers, you know. What is a legal bridge? A legal bridge is basically a traditional contract, right? And um, how we look at this is as follows. Okay, you want to share ownership, then take a traditional contract that grants economic benefit or ownership to someone else, right? Now, our insight was, hey, like if you use equity for that, it gets really complicated because you have to become, you know, you have to register uh, it as a security, right? So how can you, going back to these atomic parts of ownership, how can you maybe share ownership in a different way? Options are the original tokens. So there's no need to have a security token per se. There's no need to have a, an ERC-20 token, at least initially. Instead, you can just use an option that is a contract that's been around forever. It's legal, it's compliant, it's tried and tested, right? And what we've done is we look at this options contract and we split it into two parts. One is the property rights, which is that needs to be anchored in the existing legal and financial system. It needs to be enforceable. You need to be able to bring your claim. So you keep that off chain. You keep that inside the real world, so to speak. And the second part is the procedures, right? So how do you distribute votes? How do you distribute revenue, right? This is not the enforceable claim. This is how you make it modifiable and programmable, right? Which now you can see already, this is probably then smart contracts and tokens and like digitalization, right? So this is how we think about every legal bridge. It has these two parts, the property rights that need to be embedded in the legal system and the programmable piece, which is where we tap into what Spela said earlier, the interaction layer. There's a, a very important discovery that we've seen in the last few months, especially. You have legal contracts, but there's another layer that, that is in between the company and the contributor which is the trust layer. So even though we're always operating based on documents, it's important to have the trust layer as an actual layer that is accounted for in conversations. For example, when we work with clients, we have the contracts and then we have the implementation of an ask and then you get. So you ask for something from the community, they do it and then they get something in return. That's the, the flow. And in the time between you ask for something, they do it, and then it's given as a reward, there has to be the trust layer. So even if there's all the contracts in the world, if they don't trust you that you're actually going to, in the end, give them what you promised, none of the contracts in the world are going are gonna to help you. So we're trying to build that into the company as well, which is where we did see the potential for Web3. So if you want to have something trustless, then you need that. 
but uh, I'm not sure if it's the right time <laughs> to immediately go into that. I think Sasha can explain what, what the current private node situation is. We could explain that. But I think the next thing that was kind of in the question, I can go a little bit kind of like Sasha explained property rights and then programmable. Specifically with equity, you have two parts that are important in every equity document. The first one is who gets the control rights and the second one is who gets the financial upside. And essentially, by choosing the instrument VSOP or RSU, we're saying, no, 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 it's not both of these. We're promising one of these, the financial upside. So already that removes a lot of complexity. So the only thing they're getting is exit proceeds through financial upside that is just happens to be attached to share price. That's the template that we provide to all companies. It has been reviewed multiple times by our lawyers, their lawyers approved. So it's just sitting there waiting to be executed for a client. If I go back now to a TODR version, a client signs up. They want to create an action where they need help. They say, we will share ownership. None of the contracts have been executed yet. They just say, we will share ownership. The community starts working on it. And once the actions are complete, then the company says, okay, now we distribute the thing that we promised. So this area in between is the uh, trust that is very important. And then it's just backed with the documentations that are actually legally enforceable. Right. And uh, VSOP uh, RSU, uh, it's a virtual share option plan plus? The restricted stock unit. It's a, it's a US version. Yeah. How do you organize your customer, like your research around each use case? Because I'm assuming that each use case is quite, not use case, sorry, each client is quite unique in, in the setup. So what's your process for understanding your clients' needs and, and iterating constantly on, on your framework? In the beginning, what really kind of happened was we just went into it <laughs> and then we slowly gathered some hypotheses and then we just kept comparing what actually happened in the call to what we are trying to achieve because at such an early stage, there are two parallel thoughts that need to be going through our minds. One of them is, what do the clients want? And the second one is, what do we know that is going to be good? And you can't just completely trust the client. You have to be opinionated enough to lead them towards an actual successful result. And I think this is where we came up with these use cases. So to get to these four use cases, we were also reading online. And in the end, we just have a templated workshop. So all clients go through a, a workshop with um, Harry and I, we have it in two parts. One is more philosophical. Where do they want to go? What is the progressive decentralization path that they can embark on? And what is the first next step that they can actually achieve? And then um, we step into the numbers. Once we decide which asset are they first going to share, not in total, but first, we make sure that they, it is financially sound. <laughs> Does it make sense? If you share 10% of the company as a pilot, I think that's a bit too risky. So we make the calculations, have a recursive loop <laughs> that the, then tells us the, the answer to um, how much, to who, when, what is the total. Can you maybe just uh, jump into 
a few examples. I'm interested in exploring the edges here, right? So maybe you can do a couple of two or three examples of uh, edgy cases that can tell our listeners what is the spectrum of organizational use cases that you have been dealing with. So you already mentioned a fitness uh, organization that uh, empowers trainers to gain some equity Semi, semi-equity rights, you know, for exit proceeds. Uh, is there maybe something else that we can use to stretch the edges of this uh, scope of applicability? Sure. So what I keep finding uh, surprising is that I've been in this space for years and years, right? And on Onco, like a year and a half now, there's more and more companies that come to us that want to share ownership that we didn't expect, you know? So we had like a cooperative bank We've had a out-of-home care business um, that's struggling to keep um, talent, you know, in a freelance sort of setup. Uh, we've had like Nasdaq-listed biotech company come to us. What we're seeing on a macro level is like the demand for shared ownership is is really picking up, and it might be a commercial incentive, uh, commercial motivation. It might be moral. There's more and more of that. And um, for us as at Onco, what we find interesting um, are basically two primary segments. One is like, how can you grow better by sharing ownership? And the second is, how can you reward contributors and engage them um, longer by sharing ownership with them? So maybe Spieler wants to say a few on like the first segment, like how we can sort of help startups grow better. But I think um, if um, you want to talk about the edges, the, the most sort of interesting use cases that we haven't come across uh, until recently are in the enterprise segment. So I'll give you one example. There's a biotech company in the US speaking with, they want to share ownership with their um, indirect channel sales, right? So they've got products they want to sell and they sell them through doctors. In order to be able to do that and to get maximum sort of results, they've realized, hey, we can't just reward the channel the way we've done in the past, you know? Like we can't just pay the money and like basic sales commission. We actually want to um, have to participate in the upside using our restricted stock units. That's a really interesting example. And that's the first one we've seen of that kind where an enterprise has actually looked at sharing ownership using RSUs. So basically what I perceive that, and I want to transmit to our listeners is that uh, to share ownership, you don't need to build DAOs and get crazy around Web3, right? There are enough legal structures uh, that you can use already this company, Onco, has made uh, the heavy lifting of kind of understanding how this works, making the hard work of making the legal uh, artifacts very easy, easy programmable. Okay. And so can you maybe spend a couple of words on why uh, a new team, for example, should go the Onco way versus the pure Web3 way and uh, what kind of continuity there is between the two? Because I recall I spoke with you, Sasha, in the past, and we spoke about how Onco can also be maybe the first step and then can evolve in a full-fledged Web3 or blockchain-enabled uh, perspective, if needed. Like, you know, for example, for, for tradability and uh, all the rights that come with uh, uh, fungible and non-fungible tokens. So maybe you can kind of explain a little bit uh, these elements. Yeah, we, we have spoken about a lot in the past. Um, 
some of the initial hypotheses we had around like the benefit of blockchain and the utility of it were actually not uh, confirmed, you know. So our initial backend, just to take a trip down memory lane, was a private node setup, right? And we thought, hey, we take companies um, from their incorporated setup, put them on a private chain, which is a proof of authority. So it's somewhat mutable. And then you move them to mainnet. We thought that was a solid path. And that's not really worked out for us because companies didn't see the benefit between like a private node and just having a classic Web2 database, right, with credits, which is what we have today. And from there, now you can go and use our existing Web2 backend or the Web3 backend if you want. But the Web2 backend just as easily allows you to make that jump on chain because you can just convert that credit economy, which you've launched now into a DAO economy or um, ERC20 tokens and do whatever you want with them, right? I think there is a natural progression, just uh, as you stated. So if we combine the natural progression with also what Sasha said, that Nike is just not going to wake up and do quadratic voting, we see the future that Web3 enables, specifically in the trust layer and autonomy layer. We see that that is the way that hopefully the world uh, would work and organize itself. But currently, it unfortunately is not the reality. So if we want to meet the customers where they are at, we have to start with Web2, show the benefits of the credit system, and then show them the next step in benefits, which is all of a sudden you can kind of lift your hands up and the, the system is still going to work. And you can achieve that with the, the Web3 strategy. Does the Web3 element connect with your ideas around how multiple organizations as opposed to interact at some point, you know, because I, I've captured this idea that uh, uh, you're talking about an evolution from big organizations into smaller units. So uh, how does this connect with, with your Web3 long-term thesis? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, Shimona, you and I, I think are both equally excited about like boundaryless organizations, network organizations, right? And especially like some version of the higher model be being like the future. And I think this is really only achievable on chain where you have intra unit contracts where you have incubation contracts for these micro companies or micro teams. And ideally, like what we've built with Onco is like a first step in that direction, you know, for companies to then organize in that way. And that's really not going to be possible without smart contracts, without tokens. Hopefully uh, we'll get there and we can turn our system more and more into that kind of um, solution where you start with credits. And then over time, you have maybe two teams inside of your own co-account and you allow them to incubate as a, as a DAO on chain. And um, the legal bridge just becomes a, a way to have that DAO be compliant, you know, or you have trades happening between these teams, you know, but all of this is like future stuff and um, baby steps. That's only going to be possible. Yeah, baby steps, only going to be possible with tokens. <laughs> <laughs> How do you see this technology that you develop? Because it sounds like a technology, essentially, right? It sounds like uh, some easier user experience you built, you know, to make something that already exists uh, more affordable for organizations, more easy to engage with, right? So how do you see this technology playing out in terms of, for example, uh, evolving this into an API, seeing Onco being integrated into other products, moving at, uh, I would say, a lower level of the value chain? Because at the moment, you know, if I... If I want to use this technology, I need to have an account, I need to use Onco stack. So do you see evolving this product more as an API that maybe can be integrated into other products? How do you see that? First of all, our thesis or belief is that the future is embedded rather than 
solo products, especially when it comes to something as vital or core as sharing ownership of something. So if you're sharing ownership of a platform, why would someone log into a separate <laughs> platform to see ownership in the other platform? So that's the first thing. And the second thing that that does and allows for, we are dealing with quite a few foreign concepts. So equity is not very familiar to people. Revenue sharing, maybe loyalty points, but who, who knows? <laughs> and so we have to make sure that all of these concepts are presented at the moment where they count. So let, let me give you an example. When we ask companies what their goals are, they have a way of getting to that goal. So we want to achieve, I don't know, 100 million ARR. How do we get there? Oh, one way is to refer. We name that action and contribution, goal and contribution. But the way we explain it and the way it's presented in the product, it's almost like an OKR system because that's what people understand and know. So we're always finding concepts that are perhaps a bit new and novel, but we need to put them and represent them as something that people already know. And that's easily and best done within their own platform. So if you do something, you get an award for it, it has to be right there. It can't go out of it. You know, I perceive you guys are kind of exploring the future of employment or the future of collaborations. So making it much more liquid, right? Now we used to companies having to hire people or maybe having uh, shallow relationships based on trade, just, you know, you do some work, I pay you, which is at the other side of the spectrum. And it seems like in, there is a lot more we can program in a collaboration between one organization and one individual, Between, I guess also between two organizations. So another question that I have is, do you see own co-technology being used to create incentives between two uh, institutions, two organizations, not from one organization and one person? Yeah. I mean, I see Onco being used in every company and uh, lots of potential, but I think that's the immediate next step. So we have some freelance agencies, right, where the initial design we had inside of our app is like Spela said, right? You have goal and contribution, right? So get me 10 more customers, um, refer like 10 users, right? And um, people started looking at the interface we've built and this sort of hierarchy of goal and contribution. And they were like, hang on a minute, I can use, I'm a freelance agency. I can use this for my client projects. I can just say, this is my um, Nike design challenge and the UI design is a goal. And I will invite a contributor to this goal now. And once they've completed it, it can be used as a sort of almost like a bounty system. And then from there, they, they and this is your point now, this team, uh, this UI design team can now interact with another UI design team on Onco, right? And create a relationship between them. Or the idea we've heard is, why don't I give them credits and they can then start organizing as a company, right? Where a group of five people that were just contributors to some design project are now sort of using Onco, clicking a button and becoming a, a, a micro company. You know, and then those, once you have several of those on the platform, you're really looking at changing freelancer to freelancer interactions, but also groups of freelancers or micro companies and how they can work together on the next project. That's something that we're super excited about beyond just taking existing companies and helping them share ownership. But once we have these contributor profiles and projects on Onco, things really start to get interesting in terms of like trading between them and collaborating between them using credits. From what I perceive here, we're talking about company that is developing uh, something that wants to be a modular technology, so something that you can program anywhere. There is a relationship between two nodes, 
what you want to distribute to these four dimensions, upside, status, influence, and redemption between two nodes. You can do this kind of dynamic contracting as a module, let's say, as a functionality that you can embed wherever you want. In, in general, in organizational agreements, what is Onco's own differentiation, defensibility thesis? So how are you going to create network effects? Or is this is going to be a at some point, a commodity, because I can imagine someone else coming up and say, doing the same bridge, legal bridge work you've done. Essentially, you can maybe double click also into what is your business model, for example, you know, in relation to this. How do you monetize? How do you differentiate over the longer term? That's one of the big challenges for all of us at the moment, right? Like product modes are like almost non-existent at this point. And like most technical innovation just helps entrench incumbents, you know, the big players, um, whether it's AI or like blockchain tech. It's good for the big ones. It's really difficult for small companies to create and maintain competitive advantage. I don't think that excluded from it, but the solution we've built is still fairly complex to sort of make work. In the long run, I guess it'll be a question of how well can we serve our customers? You know, what's the value we can actually offer and maintain? And yeah, everything else can be copied. You can copy the legal bridge. You can copy the design. The front end isn't rocket science, but I think it's really the the interplay that we enable and all the knowledge that's flown into how you get companies to start sharing ownership. And that's not yet visible in the app. But the uh, future will tell, you know, I think it's going to be something that spreads and hopefully more and more customers will flock to us instead of building it themselves. Certainly you have some locking network effects here, so certain locking defensibility at least. But yeah, it would be interesting really to understand what kind of uh, further network effects and defensibilities can be built. Do you guys have anything else that you want to stress to explain, you know, to convey more deeply why your work is relevant, why a company should use it? I have one that immediately pops up. It's actually just a use case, a case study from a client. They are called the World Freestyle Football Association. If you haven't heard of them, look them up. The, just the, the backstory is just fantastic. And why I'm mentioning them here is the way they decided to run an organization of that size really shows that in the future, it's possible to give power to more people and equalize the playing field. So what they're doing is they have their organization, they have people that are key stakeholders, but then they have hundreds of thousands of participants that they rely on as an organization to run events, to come to the events, compete in the events. And it's a sports business. We we know the kind of reputation that sports businesses usually have, and they're really fighting hard against that. They can bring that change into the world through Onco. So the, the privilege that we get to participate in someone changing the world just by allowing them to distribute the power that they hold as an organization. And so they are actually executing governance transactions through Onco. This is going to spread to their entire community it's going to be thousands of people making decisions together. Yeah, and it's a, it's a great example of uh, what happens when you really break ownership into the categories we talked about earlier. You know, It doesn't have to start with equity upside. You can start by sharing influence. And I think in, in the end, like how I personally define ownership is you know, nobody really wants to own because it means you have to take care of things. You don't want to be a steward. 
ask the uh, billionaires or the people that are actually controlling things. You what you want is control. You want control over a system and its resources, right? And I don't necessarily need to hold equity for that if I get the benefit anyway, right? So I think the end goal when it comes to sharing ownership should be distributing control over resources and and systems. Can you share with us, so outside of everything around your amazing product that you're building, uh, what are some of the breadcrumbs that you would leave with uh, with the listeners? We are in a very morally heightened situation. If we think about Onco as something that potentially goes and rolls out into the world, and usually founders have that vision that it's going to become a global organization, it's going to do something good for the world. For me personally, what I found and maybe other entrepreneurs will find the same. In those moments, it is super important for me to ground myself in what uh, I believe in, what is good ethically, morally, and so on. And that usually I can achieve through just reading a very simple book of the Viktor Frankl. Everyone knows it, The Man's Search for Meaning. And rereading that takes you out of the turbo capitalism, puts you back into, okay, let's think a little bit 10 years down the line. Are we messing up the world with this? what can we do that's good while still making good business <laughs> that's super cool I'll, I'll i'll double down on the book recommendations um a little less uh a more, a more technical so I, there's one book i recommend to everyone who's like working in alternative ownership it's a, a systems thinking book and it looks at like network organizations and it's called systems thinking managing chaos and complexity i do not have an affiliate deal with any of them, uh, them. i just love the book it's amazing and i highly recommend it it's really a good piece of work. Thank you so much, Bot. I think we succeeded to explain um, in an accessible way the work that you have been doing. You're making sharing ownership uh, easy, accessible, by leveraging what's already there without the fuss and you know without the unnecessary, sometimes, uh, fascinations about Web3 and, and blockchains and so on. Ownership economy can be attractive and important on its own. It doesn't need the tech, uh, uh, let's say, frenzy element for it. So anybody that uh, it's really uh, into embracing these paradigms because you can just look into your product and see how easy it is to uh, engage with these possibilities. So thank you so much. Uh, it was great to have you. I hope you also enjoyed the conversation, both of you. Absolutely. It was amazing to be on. Thank you so, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was very nice to meet you both as well. Thank you, Stina, of course. This was really great. And for our listeners, as always, if you go to www.boundaryless.io slash resources slash podcast, you will find the transcript and you will find all the re references. And uh, until we speak again, I uh, recommend you to think boundaryless. Well, isn't it nice to speak with such passionate uh, founders? Um, this is something that probably we should do uh, a bit more often, I think. Uh, well, overall, what great explanations. I think uh, a really good way to, uh, to nail down how uh, shared ownership can work in so many different uh, places on the spectrum. Yeah, totally. I agree. We should do it more often. Probably good ideas for next season. And uh, yeah, another thing I was thinking about, you know, when we spoke about uh, product modes and defensibility, I realized that uh, sharing ownership is the best sensibility you can build.